Hi, I'm Vincent Andrasani, and this is episode 32 of The Place of Sound. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks also to those who've been following along through the last few episodes of the show. For those who happen to be listening for the first time, The Place of Sound is a show that explores the theme of space, or the social geography, using sound and listening. We do so through a variety of audio media production formats, so you can expect to do a few different types of listening in a single show. Typically, episodes consist of what we refer to as audio portraits, or oral history-style interviews that explore the topic of home. Soundscape compositions, which use everyday sounds to communicate the personal and social significance of a given place. And we often end the episode with a short documentary-style piece that explores the place-based identity of the producer. The aim with these particular projects is to allow the producer to think about the places that made them who they are today. But in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We'll still be exploring the theme of sound and listening but we'll be listening to audio reflections. As always, this work was produced by students in the Communication and Media Studies program here at Carleton University, and it responds to the following question. What does it mean to listen? It might seem straightforward enough, but there's literally an infinite number of ways to answer it. Now, typically, the responses you'll hear are about five minutes in length, and they're delivered in the form of a monologue. The projects that you'll hear in this episode were produced in Comms 5218, Sound, Space, and the City. It's a graduate-level course in the Communication and Media Studies program that ran in the winter semester of 2022. Before we listen to the projects, we're going to take a quick second to hear about a documentary podcast series produced by Megan Linton, an Ottawa-based researcher and disability justice activist. The series is called Invisible Institutions, and it explores the injustices of large-scale state institutions and their effects on those who are labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. There are now seven episodes in the series, each of which opens up a different chapter about the history of institutionalization in Canada, showing the ways that this history still very much shapes our present. It's a timely production in light of the pandemic, and it raises questions about the ways that we do or do not care for the most vulnerable people in our society. The following is a trailer for the series, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about it, check out invisibleinstitutions.com or follow them on Twitter using the handle at INVinstitutions. I have prison pen pals and there's more similarities between my living situation and the living situation in a prison institution. 
it was like a prison. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but it was. We were basically locked in our rooms, completely alone. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast exploring the horrors of large-scale state institutions for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities in Canada. The host and creator, Megan Linton, is a researcher and disability justice activist investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. Join her on her journey to the grounds of current and former institutions, including interviews with survivors, community activists, and experts, as they work together to expose the exploitation, isolation, resistance, and survival facing people labeled with disabilities. Find Invisible Institutions wherever you get your podcasts. Coming February 2022. Okay, on to the projects. In this episode, we'll listen to three audio reflections, all of which are written and delivered by recent graduates of the MA program in Communication Studies. The first is by Darnell Dobson, the second by Paris Jefferson, and the third is by Tegomira. Darnell's piece offers a poetically delivered exploration on the topic of listening by thinking about it through the lens of race. Darnell rightly frames listening as a key form of political action and as a necessary attribute of a functional, democratic society. He ends the piece by thinking about listening as a learned skill, as a way of being that can be cultivated and sharpened over time. It's a thoughtful meditation on listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Darnell, over to you. does it mean to listen? When I think about how to approach answering the question of what it means to listen, I believe it is important to first acknowledge what I think listening is not. For me, the single most important thing to acknowledge is that listening is not hearing. Throughout our lives, it would be safe to say that someone we know be it a parent, a teacher, or a significant other, has said the following phrase to us. You're hearing me, 
but are you listening? This simple phrase demonstrates that listening is so much more than your brain interpreting the sounds that pass through your ears, but the ability to genuinely engage in conversation with the aim of trying to understand feelings or a different perspective or facts. That for me is a general outlook on what it means to listen. A modus operandi, if you will, for looking at listening. However, my position as a black man in a predominantly white society compels me to look at listening a little bit differently, particularly through the lens of race and privilege. Pertaining race, there's no doubt that society has made strides towards equality and more importantly, equity. However, we still have a long way to go. In my opinion, a big part of the reason why equality and equity continue to be major stumbling blocks in addressing the racial divide in Western society is the continued lack of listening by those in positions to make changes. What tends to happen, in my view, is that society hears and sees some of the struggles faced by minorities, but are not truly listening to what the voices of victims and what they have to say, which typically results in decisions or actions being taken that are performative in nature and, to be honest, do nothing significant towards closing the racial divide. The reality is that some of the conversations that are required to spark productive change, in my opinion, are far too uncomfortable for a society that has only in the last few decades or so started to come to terms with the fact that the very foundation of their democracy and the freedom that is afforded to them was built on the roots of genocides and slavery and countless forms of racial oppression that has been committed against visible minorities. Getting people to have these conversations proves to be extremely difficult, particularly as it requires them to acknowledge their privilege. Looking at listening through this lens is very important, as the people who can affect change are typically those who are operating from a place of privilege which, as I mentioned earlier, comes from centuries of discrimination towards racial minorities. Listening in this sense not only requires acknowledging said privilege, but having the humbleness to put oneself in these uncomfortable conversations and being actively engaged while at the same time deferring to those who have the first-hand experiences so as to determine how we can move forward. In closing out this reflection, I genuinely believe that no one is born a great or even good listener. I think some people are naturally gifted at different aspects of listening or have certain skills that contribute to being a good listener. But I believe that we often forget that listening is a total package. It requires focus, discipline, patience, and the ability to be humble, especially when what is being communicated to us 
is not pleasing or challenges our character or our point of view. Yet, although I do not believe anyone is born a good listener, I do believe that anyone can become a good listener. And that for me is very encouraging that such an important human trait is also very teachable and a very learnable trait. The second audio reflection we'll listen to is by Paris Jefferson, and it's titled The Map of My Voice. Paris does an excellent job of using the sound of the voice to think through geography and the political implications of regional belonging. As an actor who was compelled to change her enunciation in order to find work, Paris describes voice as a marker of class and of one's position in society, which of course are all brought to bear in the ways that people listen. Paris poetically refers to this concept as the map of one's voice, which is an idea that's filled with potential for further exploration. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Paris Jefferson, and this is the map of my voice. What is listening? Listening is an intensely personal experience. And I'm not sure that any of the definitions that I read really encompass what it is, at least not for me. According to the Oxford Dictionary, listening is to pay attention to somebody or something that you can hear. From the Oxford languages, it is to give one's attention to a sound, take notice of, and act on what someone says, respond to advice or a request, be alert and ready to hear something. When I arrived in the United Kingdom as a bright-eyed young actor, my voice had a distinct Australian twang, an accent with traces of 19th century Irish and English working-class convicts. Over the decades, this manner of speaking had morphed into an egalitarian similarity for all modern-day Australians. Once in London, however, I had to lose that colonial twang if I wanted to work in film and theatre. After three weeks of voice lessons, I had mastered received pronunciation, known as RP, that familiar and comforting accent that carries the BBC World Service across the radio waves to the rest of the world. This vocal transition was an exercise in oral gymnastics. The placement of RP is at the front of the mouth, whereas Australian sits at the back. For example, I had to learn to say the word little with the tip of my tongue placed behind the top row of my teeth and push little puffs of air out to the side as I said the word. Sounds complicated? It certainly felt complicated. It took a lot of listening and a lot of practice. I had to go through the same chewing toffee-like motions when I had to master a standard American accent. Now when I speak, my voice drifts in and out of Australian with a little RP and the occasional American R sound thrown in for good measure. These vocal shifts indicate my lived history, the map of my voice. It tells of at least three different continents, of someone on the move, a peripatetic lifestyle, one with a background in history of both colonialism 
and imperialism. In addition to this, my training as an actor focused almost exclusively on how to listen. Acting is embodying a heightened existence where one not only speaks the text, but more importantly, responds to the spoken word. When actors become proficient in truly listening to the other actor, the performances can be electric, like a spontaneous exchange in a jazz-like atmosphere, one of action and reaction. Consequently, as a result of vocal adaptation and being trained as an actor, my ear has become very attuned for not just what is being said, but how it is being said. I am forever, almost unconsciously, listening to the map of someone's voice, the words they speak in conjunction with how they say it. Where do they come from? Where is the placement of their voice and vowels? What does it tell of their past? Is it a fast or slow delivery, garbled or clear? Sometimes I get so distracted by the way someone is speaking, I don't always hear what they're saying. Their voice becomes a jigsaw bustle to piece together. It could be argued that in spite of my training and years of experience, I have become a bad listener, or at least a selective listener. Perhaps, though, the most poignant an elegant example of listening is from the multi-award-winning documentary film Notes on Blindness, which traces the journey of the theologian John Hull, who lost his sight in the early 1980s. In one scene, we see the rain slap against the walls and the roof of his house, his car, the leaves on the trees in the garden, and the puddles outside his front door in which he stands listening. The sound around his home is like a symphony of droplets allowing him vision. As Hull says, rain brings out the contours of what is around you in that it introduces a blanket of differentiated and specialized sound which fills the whole of the audible environment. If only there could be something equivalent to rain falling inside, then the whole of a room would take on shape and dimension. With the sound of rain, you are presented with a world. You are related to a world. You are addressed by a world. Why should this experience strike one as beautiful? Hull ends on these three words. Cognition is beautiful. We all hear listen and absorb sounds differently. And it is my hope to learn about those differences during the semester where I can improve my awareness of our respective vocal maps, but also delve into the listening of others. And thank you for listening. The third and final piece is by Teg Mira, and it explores listening by introducing the ideas of experience and positionality. Teg argues that however we understand the concept of listening, it must in some way be informed by our previous experiences and how we identify as individuals. By linking the idea of listening to the concept of identity, Teg argues that the ways we listen are always changing, always in flux. 
reflecting the changes that we ourselves experience as individuals and as the communities that we're a part of. Take. On listening. What does it mean to listen? As someone without much experience in the field of sound studies, I had no idea how to approach this question. And even after many hours pondering the topic, I feel like there's still so much that I'm missing. What does it mean to listen? It seems like such a simple and straightforward query. If we are fortunate enough to be born into this world with the ability to listen, to live our lives experiencing the world through sound, should the answer to this question not come easily? Having an entire discipline devoted to the topic implies that the issue is not uncomplicated. Due to the countless number of beings who are able to hear, the combinations of different means and methods of consuming sound are surely immeasurable. So how can this question be approached simply? And so this thought will form the basis of my answer. One's experiences and positionality is the principal influence on one's relationship to sound and how one listens. If we understand the senses as features of the body that allow us to make meaning of our environments, hearing is perhaps the most critical, possibly second only to sight. Like anything, our relationship to particular sounds is influenced by our experiences and understandings. We cannot make sense of a sound without understanding it through our own biases. It is arguably impossible to divorce what we hear from what we know. For example, while I might hear a truck horn and experience anxiety due to my own perception of the city as dangerous or threatening, you might hear the same sound and associate it with your own positive associations with the city, with life or excitement. You may notice the uncertainty and nervousness in my voice as you listen to this audio reflection and have this taint your perception of the entire recording, associating this nervousness with the lack of knowledge or ability. Another might relate to the anxiety and wavering tone and thus feel more in agreement with my message. Assuming that the audience hears these sounds in the same tones and acoustics, the individual's listening is influenced by their biases, resulting in a different experience to the sound. Biologically, this makes a lot of sense. In order to be safe in our environments, we are hardwired to notice sounds that we have never heard. It is somewhat of a default of our psychology. Once we have experienced and identified a sound for the first time, we either identify it as benign or threatening. Upon hearing every sound, our experience tells us whether it will or will not be a threat. Subjectively, our sound experiences are colored by the context in which we first heard a particular sound. To extend this assertion, because of the biases that influence how we hear sound, it makes sense that communities with common experiences would derive a similar meaning from certain sounds. Relying on this understanding of listening, media makers create content that depend on common experience. They depend on the expectations that certain communities will experience some sounds in similar ways. For example, an advertisement that is intended to influence an age group of 60 to 70 year olds might use ma- music that was popular during their youth to incite feelings of nostalgia and sentimentality. They rely on the hope that the majority of individuals in this age group will respond to this sound correspondingly. Furthermore, the reliance on a predictable response to certain sounds can be used in media to elicit elicit feelings of cognitive dissonance. 
Examples of this can be seen in movies and television shows that show disturbing or gruesome scenes accompanied by nostalgic, joyous music. For example, the torture scene in Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs shows a man shockingly disfigured to the cheery tune of Steeler's Wheels Stuck in the Middle with You. Tarantino confuses our understanding of the sound by associating it with contradictory images. In doing this, our future perception of the sound is influenced, thus demonstrating that hearing and listening are not fixed. While this audio reflection is perhaps not complete in its response to the question, what is listening? The thought process has led me to a new understanding of listening as something more than the physical act of hearing. To understand listening is to understand the truly intersectional nature of experience and its influence on our perception of sound. I now look at sound and listening as something that is not fixed or permanent. As our experiences of sounds change, so does how we perceive, how we hear, and how we listen. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of The Place of Sound. But before I sign off, a couple of quick notes. A reminder that what we've listened to here on this show is only a fraction of the work produced in association with this project. If you're interested in checking out more, have a look at theplaceofsound.ca, where you're not only able to hear more audio media, but in some cases, to see some of the original photos and the writing that students produce to go along with it. There's also a featured work section on the site's blog where you can access some notable individual projects. And in the classes section, you can have a look at some of the work produced in each of the previous semesters. And lastly, under the listen link, you're able to access the show's archive and listen back to any episode of the show you'd like to hear. But in the meantime, keep your ear out for upcoming episodes of the show, which air on CKCU Radio every other Monday at 6.30pm and are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Place of Sound. Thank you.